From chasing scorpions in the deserts of Saudi Arabia to teenage antics in the Barossa vineyards and the sneakiest wine launch ever in history, today we welcome Cam and Al Ashmead from Elveston Wines. So that's a really great idea. I'm going to make my biscuits the same way. And all of a sudden you've got a regional food story that's just been born. For honey biscuits and uh, please don't ask me to do it in German. <laughs> and I think we will look back in 20 years time and say, wow, that was really something supported Dragon three times, Mental as Anything, The Choir Boys, The Angels, The Divinals. He'd miss the ball and I have to explain to him, no, you can't re-hit it. I must have hit it. The great live Yabby event of 1996. Dog in the back of the boat that was being fed meat pies on the way over. <laughs> Nothing awkward about that, man. But please, call me Dave. It's just us. The stories of Barossa told by Barossans. Hosted by the vintage whisperer, winemaker and aspiring actor Stuart Bourne. With wine educator, marketing director and complete new import legend to the Barossa, Amanda Longworth. And why the hell does every Barossan, except me, have a yabby story? And welcome Cam and Al Ashmead. Lovely to have you on today. Thanks for having us. First question I'd like to, to delve into is a little bit about this arriving in Barossa from Saudi Arabia as kids. Do you remember what that was like, arriving from a big, big, yep. crazy city to Barossa? I definitely do. Like, we were back in Melbourne for a few weeks before coming to the big homestead in Nuriutpa, and I distinctly remember uh, trucking across the country in a car, and we had a speedboat attached to the back. We had a dog in the back of the boat that was being fed meat pies on the way over. <laughs> And we arrived at this massively big house that was far too big for five of us at the time. And it was cold, dark, and we said, oh my God, what have we done? <laughs> you know, all the uh, the gardens were overgrown and there were greenhouses there, which Al and I took great delight in smashing every pane of glass with. <laughs> and it wasn't then what it is today. Yeah, it's amazing to look at it today and, and see what a remarkable homestead it is but it wasn't really, it didn't really appear like that when we first arrived and of course neither of us had ever really seen a vineyard before having lived in Saudi for a couple of years we were more accustomed to running around the deserts and uh, <laughs> looking out for scorpions basically but quickly became home well with that Elderson celebrating 40 years in 2021 uh, tell us a little bit about growing up with your parents was, was did you think they were just a bit crazy did you really understand the kind of legacy that they were creating uh, dad was definitely a bit crazy which was a good thing but mum certainly had a level head we were somewhat kept aside from the wine business I think as children I think mum and dad were relatively naive as to what they were getting themselves into and we'll, we'll probably talk about their foresight later on during this chat for us it was just life living next to the primary school that we that we walked to every day through these vineyards that I don't think we we truly understood do you agree oh, for sure you know so particularly in those early 90s when the brand was sort of getting some traction you know they were sort of dealing with these interest rates you know and the, the high teens it was very tough they didn't have a dollar to scratch themselves with and we just thought everything was rosy but it probably wasn't at the time so when do you think it really dawned on you that what you had wasn't something that other families had uh well for me i was living in sydney at the time and it was 1993 and when mum and dad called me very late in the evening to tell tell me that we'd won the jimmy watson which was a life-changing experience and probably gave us some recognition some reputation i suppose and i just knew then that things would change probably overnight mm. and for me it was probably pretty similar i was in university about that time uh, not doing very well in my course uh, as I was trying to discover as much about wine or probably more like more 
probable beer through those days and, <laughs> and sort of went, oh my God, look at this opportunity that we have as the, as the next generation and uh, what do I have to do to get there, basically. Fantastic. And Al, you mentioned something about there about your, your parents' foresight. Um, did you want to touch on that? Well, I think, I mean, mum and dad's great advantage in moving here to the Barossa was that they weren't locals. Um, and they hadn't seen those tough times. They didn't really understand the vine pull uh, or, or get what was going on. And, and they saw this silver lining, basically, and this opportunity. And Dad was certainly a, an energetic and, and full-of-life guy that just saw this opportunity and went with it. And the initial plan of Elderton was not to have branded wine. It was to, to make... Well, the initial plan was to try and sell fruit to the wealthy winemakers of the Barossa. And when they quick, quickly realised there weren't any wealthy winemakers in the Barossa, <laughs> they went, well, let's start a bulk wine business where we'll make wine and we'll sit on it and we'll sell it when, when times are better. And, and then Dad sort of, I think he was probably selling it for less than a dollar a litre in those days and then watching sort of winemakers charge $8 a bottle for it and went, hang on, there's something we can do here. And uh, he went at it. Mum mum was certainly a lot of the brains behind the operation and whatnot but i think probably starting the command shiraz in 1984 when technically speaking mum and dad still probably could have got paid to pull those vines out um, probably shows a lot of that foresight and understanding of knowledge of what was what was going to happen here in the brossa mm. in those days i i think that elderson was very much known as being a marketing company and that sort of went back to you know dad and his expertise working for multinational companies, also mum in the background, you know, being that rock, I suppose, you know, um, probably saved the company from going bust at least five times. Um, you know, uh, that was how we started. But if you look at the company today, you know, even though marketing is very important to us and, you know, I'd look at ourselves as being a vineyard run company these days, which is what you'd expect from most great estates around the world. Just on that, you're talking about your dad's vision and your, your dad's history and the like but obviously there's a fair amount of local legend that lies around your dad as well and one in particular that springs to mind is his ability to break land speed records when he was out taking wine to the world can you can you share a bit about that for us there is absolutely no doubt about that and if he <laughs> if he was around today and i wish he was he would be in jail uh, <laughs> He would drive between here and Melbourne, which is roughly 800 and something kilometres in less than four and a half hours, or wow. Sydney, which is about 1,600 k's in sort of uh, just over nine hours. And, uh, you know, Al and I, we, uh, we had the pleasure of going along on those trips, so sort of doing 200 kilometres per hour. Uh, he would have a radar detector, which are now very illegal, and a CB <laughs> so he could speak to the truckies to figure out where the police were. Um, but he had no qualms about going that fast with his uh, sort of background in, uh, in motor racing. But he'd always also take that motor racing out to the vineyards as well. And there was one great story where he was looking after a group of people at uh, our Newry vineyard. They probably had about uh, five bottles too many each uh, <laughs> and doing 160 k's down uh, what is now, you know, sort of uh, a bitumen track. But in those days, it was a, it was an old dirt track. 160 k's, getting a fishtail and uh, the car basically wiped out a whole lot of O-Tolerane vines now and probably about 50 vines. Oh. And these people were strapped into the car sort of on its side and they had to, you know, unstrap and it was it wasn't pretty. Yeah. Oh dear. That was the end of that car. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, it's definitely true. I think when you're sort of driving along country roads and you see how fast you should go around corners, um, Cam and I spent our childhood thinking, well, it's obviously that plus 100, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it just, 
you, you touched on uh, the Ode to Lorraine vines that your dad went and uh, remodelled for everyone. But I think there's also a very beautiful story about how the Ode to Lorraine came into being. There is a, a wonderful story about Ode to Lorraine, and Lorraine is obviously very much cherished by all of us in the family. Um, she's probably that cliched, really great woman that stands behind a good man and does more than her fair share of the work, but has never wanted the accolades and certainly avoids the spotlight at all costs. And so after Dad passed away in 97, I came back into the business a few years later in late 1999. Cam came back in 03, and, and over the period between when I came back and when Cam came back, we hatched a plan to, to name a wine after Mum, and we tried previously. Uh, our mistake then was that we told her about it, and so after 03, when Cam was back, we just kept everyone in the company a secrecy, uh, did things like our teen teenage years and just didn't tell Mum about it. <laughs> and uh, we planned to uh, change the name of one of our wines in our portfolio, which was a Cabernet Shiraz Merlot blend, call it the Ode to Lorraine, throw a huge surprise birthday party for Mum's 60th. It was all going swimmingly. A couple of months before, though, it, it was derailed in a big way. And Mum came to us and said, listen, boys, I think you're up to something. She said, I, I don't celebrate my birthday anymore. And I don't think it's a good thing that I'm another year older. And she said, if you throw me a party, I'm going to write you guys out of my will. <laughs> and uh, she didn't know that she'd given us the companies about five years before that. <laughs> and we controlled the trust. But, yeah. um, but uh, we said, Mum... We understand, we get it, but it's time for you to have some fun. It's time for you to spend a dollar on yourself because she's she's always been so humble and modest and in reality she did everything for, for the two of us to enjoy. And we said if you don't do something remarkable we're going to we're going to throw you a party. And she came up with a plan a few days later to go to New York with a good friend. They were gonna spend a couple of weeks walking the streets of Manhattan and the neighborhoods of Manhattan and we said, Well we'll organize and pay for your birthday dinner and sent her along to Jean George. So a three Michelin star restaurant in Manhattan. Meryl Street was in the restaurant the night they dined there, which got the girls excited. And the sommelier came over and took them through the wine list. Mum wanted to try some American wine. So I chose a Chardonnay from a producer in Oregon. And he came back with the first ever bottle of the 2002 Ode to Lorraine, presented that bottle to her and said, um, perhaps you'd rather drink this. Happy birthday, Lorraine. And uh, as you can imagine, lots of laughter, lots of tears. And about 10 minutes later, lots of anger. Uh, but she was... <laughs> She was 16,000 kilometres away from us. <laughs> she called us that night to tell us how much she loved us and that we had better have only made one bottle of that. I think the nice part of the story now is, is mum is, truly understands what her contribution has been and, and I think believes that she deserves it, which she does. Amazing story. I've, I've actually got a bit of a tear in my eye, I have to say. What lovely <laughs> sons you I told are. That, I told that story once in Memphis in front of a whole lot of wholesale salespeople. It's about 50 of them in the room, and there was one lady, and she couldn't stop crying for 15 minutes. <laughs> got really embarrassing. Oh, it's, it's lovely. But I also think, isn't there a story behind the colour of the label as well? Uh, there is. The colour's now disappeared, but when we first made that wine, um, we decided to have a bit of a play and a bit of a laugh about one of the mistakes probably Mum made when she was at the helm of Elderton. And again, sort of taking a sidetrack here, I was doing a wine dinner in Melbourne once, and someone... I talked about this mistake Mum made and, and someone yelled out was conceiving me, which I thought was a bit harsh personally, but uh, <laughs> a bit of a laugh. When we when we first made the Cabernet Rise Merlot blend, Mum and Dad actually put it together to try and save their ailing wine business. It was the, what they thought was the best wine on the on the property that was, go, was going to go on and win the Jimmy Watson Trophy. And of course, that never happened, but it wasn't a big 
problem because our state cabernet was the winner that year and our state shiraz was in the in the trophy taste off as well but when it was time to label and bottle that wine it was mum's job to go to the printers to sign off on the color that was going to be used and as a family the understanding was that it was going to be an understated red and in mum's own words she said that she had the drunkest booziest night of her life the night before <laughs> um, printers have very bright lights in them and she said she could not take her sunglasses off and she signed the bottom line uh, on the first colour that they put in front of her which was a, a pretty hot pink basically <laughs> in the mid-1990s it was it was fairly risque you didn't see things like that on wine labels and it was it was fixed a year or two after but in uh, attributing this wine to mum we decided to bring the hot pink back and uh, and have a bit of a laugh about it as well and the day I signed off on that label and the day I signed off on the colour of that box which has now unfortunately in many respects um, disappeared and I just sat there with my head on the desk for about five hours just going I think I've destroyed this place so, uh, <laughs> it has become a bit of a legend it did it did have amazing shelf presence that hot pink label and I like the fact that uh, James Halliday in one of his books said incredible wine but the world's worst wine label <laughs> <laughs> so now, between the two of you, you've got six children. Do you think that they're, as the next generation, are they aware of their family heritage and the legacy of Neil and Lorraine as grandparents? Well, I'll, I'll go first here and I'll say that my kids are a bit younger than, than ours. You know, my eldest now is 12. You know, they can tell the difference between Shiraz and Chardonnay. Not drinking, obviously, <laughs> but by, by colour, which I think is, good. is a good thing. Um, but they're very inquisitive and they're asking a lot of questions um but i suppose from my perspective um i'm not forcing them to do anything a bit like what our parents did to us and i'd love for them to go off and get some real world experience doing other things before they potentially came back to Alberton. but i'm hoping at least one of uh either you know my three boys or our three girls will come back into the business and be a winemaker or a viticulturalist or a wine marker or a tractor driver you know that's it would you know, we're trying to build a business for our kids, 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 if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. And, and I think that the multi-generational stories that lie around the Barossa don't necessarily have to date back to the 1850s to be relevant. And just on that, you both went off and did your own things for many years before returning to the family fold. Did you have conversations around the dinner table about guiding future plans within the business when you were growing up? Uh, I certainly did before Cam did. Cam went away uh, after doing a commerce degree and went into banking and travelled all over the world and lived in London and Munich for quite a long time. And as I said earlier, like I pretty much understood that my path was, was to go into the wine industry. And I sat down sort of after getting terrible, terrible results after year one of university and uh, plotted out a future apprenticeship before mum and dad would let me come home basically and in many respects it was very unfortunate that we lost dad during that apprenticeship and I was brought home a lot earlier because I was I was having a lot, lot of fun traveling around the world and <laughs> doing things I probably shouldn't like what nothing <laughs> <laughs> what happens at uni stays yeah. at uni I'm not um, sure you're the interviewer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and just on that, given that taking wine to the world is something that Barossans have been absolutely exceptional at, led by a couple of generations ago, a few 
the Barossa forefathers just going out and showing the world what we really could do. And I think, how many countries between the two of you have you travelled to when you've taken Elderton Wines out to show off the Barossa? That's a good question. Uh, like, we sell wine to roughly 30 countries around the world, and there's wow. probably 10 that are, you know, pretty active, and the other 20s are sort of nice to have, and they might order wine every one or two years. But we haven't gone off and visited all of those countries. Um, saying that, I do want to go to Brazil. We haven't been there yet. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully one day but yeah it's sort of changed from my perspective you know gone are the days we go out and sort of have those big boozy nights you know trying to sell wine you know it's become very sophisticated and professional and you have to talk about terroir a lot these days which i think is you know the evolution of the barossa and it's a good thing but yeah it's uh, it's sort of hard to get out and see other countries at the moment with what's happening in the world and hopefully we'll see some return to you know normality i totally agree with that in terms of that larrikin concept of the barossa winemaker and there there have been some some remarkable people that have that have pushed this region forward and there are still some of there is still a lot of that obviously in the barossa which is highly enjoyable but it's that concept of what remarkable vineyards that we have that uh, is going to tell the real fine wine story of the barossa going forward rather than how many beers you can drink after midnight When people see the vineyards that we have here, you know, particularly people from overseas, they just they just can't believe it. Particularly when you talk about these hundred plus vineyards and actually see them, you know, it just puts everything to, into perspective for them. Well, I think that's very pertinent, given that your property has an old vineyard, I believe, planted in eighteen ninety four on the banks of the Power River by the Shoals family. That subsequently was a Tolly family vineyard just after World War One. And this is part of the legacy that Elderton Wines have. Yeah, it's such a great vineyard. So that vineyard obviously makes the Command Shiraz, which is our most famous wine, and one of Australia's great Shirazes. Uh, that vineyard is just an absolute treasure to the family. And it's it's amazing how often we sit down and just remark how easy it is to farm that block. Like, it is just such a pleasure to work with. It knows what it's doing. We actually have to cut it back and green harvest probably more often mm. than not. So it just shows that, I guess, the health and vitality that these things have. And as I get older and understand that getting to 100 is probably not the easiest thing to do, I certainly look, <laughs> I certainly look at these vines and go, how remarkable are they at 127 or whatever they are? It's, um, it's just such an yeah. amazing story. We did also acquire a vineyard in 2010. And at that time, with the GFC, there were only two vineyards bought and sold uh, in the Barossa. And we acquired an old Helbig vineyard in Greenock that has some old Shiraz and Carrigan from 1915 as well. And that makes a wine that we call the, the uh, Helbig 1915. And that's an incredible wine, even though Command Shiraz will always be our most famous wine. This is something that's a little bit special as well. And we've been making that wine since 2013. Look, I have to say thank you to both of you. Um, I've heard some of those stories before and they still touch my heart every time. Mm. Um, and I must say the, the home that you grew up in, which is now your cellar door, is a, is a treasure to the Barossa as well. I think the legacy that you're creating for your children for the region is really amazing. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today and sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cheers.